If you haven't already, I'd ask that you would take God's word into your hands and uh, turn to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 1. We are into the second to last uh, message in our series that we've entitled, Elijah, a man like us. And boy, we have spent a lot of time looking at this man who is like us. With one week left, I have to look back and say, what a journey it has been. We've seen Elijah in a lot of different places, a lot of different scenarios, a lot of different occasions where it would seem like a man lesser than Elijah would run away and go home. But Elijah, a man who had all the similar passions and uh, features just as we did, stood strong amidst troubled times to speak to a nation. And we've seen him in a lot of different scenarios. As a way of review, just as you're turning there, we remember in week one where we saw Elijah come on the scene ever so abruptly to pronounce a famine to Israel and the king Ahab and the queen Jezebel. For three and a half years, the nation would struggle, not seeing dew nor rain. Livestock would die. Uh, Food would become scarce. In fact, many probably lost their lives as a result of this famine. We see right after that in our text that he moves off to Kareth, a ravine, where he would be fed by ravens in a place of solitary um, involvement. Only with himself and God, he would sit by a brook waiting for the word of the Lord to come. We know that next he moved to a widow's home in the town of Zarephath, in the homeland and region of Jezebel the queen, where Baal worship was at its greatest. And there we would see in that widow's home, and we're reminded of the truths that we learned of God's provision, and even greater than that, God's resurrecting power in raising uh, the widow's son back to life. We knew after that, of course, as we studied, that God then sends Elijah to have his second encounter with the wicked King Ahab to speak to him and to pronounce uh, a test to prove whose God would be greater. And of course, that time then leads to the epic battle that takes place between Baal and God. 450 prophets of Baal and one prophet of Jehovah, Elijah, pitted against one another to figure out whose God would answer by fire. We learned that week that God is the one who answers, and we see the 450 prophets of Baal destroyed. After that, we see Elijah then head to the mountaintop to wait for the coming rain. In fact, he prays persistently, asking his servant seven times to go and to peek out over the horizon to see if there are any clouds that would show of an impending rain. And on the seventh time, after six times of not seeing anything, the servant comes back and he says, a cloud the size of a hand has appeared in the sky. Elijah says he hears the rain, the thunderous rain coming. He tells Ahab to head towards Jezreel. And with lightning speed, he outruns in a 20-mile journey. He outruns a chariot and meets Elijah when, or meets Ahab when uh, Ahab arrives in Jezreel. It's there that we see while this great and marvelous man that we would think that he was superhuman. But if we remember, it is there at that time in Jezreel that uh, Jezebel comes with a threat. I'm going to kill you, Elijah. As the gods live, in 24 hours you will be dead. That message comes to Elijah, and right when we think Elijah is this incredible man who can do no wrong, we see Elijah become one like us, one who lacks faith, one who lives in fear. And as a result of that, Elijah runs. 
and he runs a long distance. Totally isolated, he falls to the depths of depression and despair. It is where God meets him in God's grace and love. And he calls him to anoint three people. Elisha, who would be the prophet that would come after Elijah, and two kings. And he says that amidst these men's ministry and times, that they would once and for all deal with Baal and all of those who were a part of the wicked family of royalty that ruled over Israel. And then some time takes place, and we know that at the end of 1 Kings, that one more time in 2 Kings 1, I'm sorry, 1 Kings 21, that uh, Elijah is once again called to approach Ahab. Now the third time. And he's to approach him because Ahab has wanted a piece of property and because he could not get it, because God's law prohibited it, Ahab allowed the death of an innocent man to take place and Elijah's called to confront him once again. Much time has passed in these last 10 weeks. There's been a lot of events in our world that have taken place, but even greater than that and even more than that are the events that have taken place in Elijah's life. I hope, it is my prayer, that you've not just been blessed by this series on Elijah, but that you've been challenged, that you've been challenged to be the Elijah in your world today, to stand amidst troubled times, to speak out against sinfulness in a world that is hell-bent on rebellion. Now we see Elijah now going into 2 Kings 1. He's an older man, far wiser far spiritually stronger in his faith than ever before. Once again, he's going to be the prophet of God's truth and judgment to a king, but not Ahab this time, but his son Ahaziah. So as we get into our text this morning with all of that background, I want us to look at what God has next for Elijah. But instead of looking at our text right away, I want to get some background of what happens between 1 Kings and second Kings. So I'd ask that you would stand, and we're going to look first of all at 1 Kings 22, verses 29 through 40, and then we're going to skip over to a couple verses at the very end of 1 Kings, and then get into our text today. So let's get some understanding of what's transpired since Naboth's killing, and the murder of Naboth, and the times of 2 Kings. This is what it says in 1 Kings 22, verses 29. So the king of Israel, and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went to Ramoth, Gilead. The king of Israel, that's Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel, Ahab, disguised himself and went into the battle. Now the king of Aram had ordered his 32 chariot commanders, do not fight with anyone, small or great, except the king of Israel. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, They thought, surely this is the king of Israel. So they turned to attack him. But when Jehoshaphat cried out, the chariot commander saw that he was not the king of Israel. He was not Ahab, and they stopped pursuing him. But someone drew his bow at random and hit Ahab between the sections of his armor. The king told his chariot driver, wheel around and get me out of the fighting. I have been wounded. All day long the battle raged, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. The blood from his wound ran onto the floor of the chariot, and that evening Ahab died. As the sun was setting, a cry spread uh, through the army, every man to his town, everyone to his land. So the king Ahab died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried him there. They washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria where the prostitutes bathed, 
And the dogs licked up his blood, as the word of the Lord had declared. As for the other events of Ahab's reign, including all he did, the palace he built, and the inlaid uh, with ivory, and the cities he fortified, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? King Ahab rested with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. Move down to verse 51. Ahaziah, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria. In the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he would reign over Israel for two years. Now notice what it says of Ahaziah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord because he walked in the ways of his father and mother, that's Ahab and Jezebel, in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. He served and worshipped Baal and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger, just as his father Ahab had done. Now going to 2 Kings now, our text for this morning. After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and had injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, Go and consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you are going off to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So Elijah went. When the messengers returned to the king, he asked them, Why have you come back? A man came to meet us, they replied. And he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and tell them, This is what the Lord says. Is it it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending men to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. The king asked them, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, he was a man with a garment of hair and with a leather belt around his waist. The king said that was Elijah, the Tishbite. Then he sent to Elijah a captain with his company of 50 men. The captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and he said, Man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah answered the captain, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. At this, the king sent to Elijah another captain with his fifty men. The captain said to him, Man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. If I'm a man of God, Elijah replied, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then the fire from God fell from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. So the king sent a third captain with his 50 men. The third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of those 50 men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men, but now have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. He told the king, this is what the Lord says, is it because there is no God in Israel for you to consult, uh, for you to consult that you have sent messengers to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So he died, Ahaziah dies, 
according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoke. Because Ahaziah had no son, Joram succeeded him as king. In the second year of Jehoram, a son of um, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. As for the other events of Ahaziah's reign, what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Let's pray. Father God, much history has taken place. We enter into another book of your holy scriptures. We move from 1 Kings into 2 Kings, and the life of Elijah is still continuing. And your hand is on him like never before. Father, we need the confidence of Elijah. We need the boldness of Elijah. But Lord, we must also recognize that in the world we live in, our modern-day Ahaziahs, people who desire to know your will apart from you, who say that there is no God. Lord, I pray that we would be the light to those people in darkness. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who finds themselves questioning or living as if there is no God, that today would be the day that through the warnings of Scripture that they would bow the knee to you. Now, Lord, speak through me. And use my words that they may be your words to produce in your people righteousness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When I was younger, my dad used to use a term. I don't know whether he coined it or not. But he would always seem to say after he has seen a certain event, there's a fool born every minute. It usually came as a result of him seeing someone who had gotten conned into doing something stupid. Or it would usually mean someone who had been duped into believing a lie. Probably the worst thing to say as a grown man is it usually involved one of his sons who had just told a tale of some moronic activity that they had been a part of. A fool is born every minute. P.T. Barnum would coin something very similar when he would say that a sucker was born every minute of every day. Our text today speaks of a fool, a sucker, one who gets conned, one who gets duped into believing a lie. This fool's name is Ahaziah. And I want you to notice that three times in our text, a phrase is used. And it's from this phrase that I want to springboard our study today. The phrase is seen, first of all, in verse 3, where Elijah is told by God to go and ask of the men who were seeking an answer from the God of Ekron. He asked this question, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going off to consult Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Is it because there is no God? Sadly, in our world today, Ahaziah is not the only one who falls prey to this kind of foolishness. Our world is filled with fools. Now, there are two types of fools. I want you to write this down. It's not in your outlines, but it will be beneficial to you because uh, we are told in Psalm uh, 14, Psalm 14, verse 1, that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And we would affirm that, that anyone who says that there is no God themselves is spiritually foolish. But before we start pointing fingers, we must recognize that in Psalm 14, the scripture says that God looks all across the world. He spans the globe looking for one who understands, one who is not foolish, and he can't find one. Why? 
because we all at one time or another were foolish ourselves. We at one time or another were spiritually unable to discern the things of God. Because of that, we were spiritually disobedient, full of sin, and angry and against God in all of his ways. And so we too once were foolish. But now, because of the grace of Almighty God, we have, if you will, proverbially, proverbially seen the light. But what about those who remain in their sin? I want to classify them in two ways. First of all, I want you to write this in your outlines. There is what we call the intellectual fool. The intellectual fool. The intellectual fool is one who believes, he is one who believes there is no God. This individual, after looking at the facts, after careful study in his own mind and thoughts, have concluded that the notions of God are completely, of God and his existence, are completely fabled and false. We see this type of foolishness in the lives of atheists. But that doesn't seem to be Ahaziah's issue. And I don't want to address that kind of foolishness or understanding of God. Because I think Ahaziah knew about God. I think he understood who God was and what he was all about. You say, well, how do you know that? I want to look at his name. Now this blows me away. Ahab and Jezebel, as wicked as they were, followers of Baal as they were, still named each of their children names after Yahweh. The name Ahaziah literally means Yahweh holds firm. You think Ahaziah knew that there was a God named Yahweh? You better believe it. It was his namesake. And how true Ahaziah's name would come to fruition in the life of that he was about to live. So this Ahaziah was not an intellectual fool, but he was what I would like to call a behavioral fool. A behavioral fool. This is one who behaves like there is no God. It's different. They may believe that there's a God, but their behavior, their actions, show themselves to not have any thought of God or any kind of retribution that God may bring as a result of sin and careless living. This is Ahaziah, one who knew who God was but failed to acknowledge him when the rubber met the road. Sadly, in our world today, there are far more behavioral atheists than there are intellectual ones. In fact, I'm confident that there may be a fair number of you in this place today who confess the name of God, but in your behavior and in your actions, you live as if there is no God in Israel. Consulting the things of this world, pursuing the things of this world, you know that there is a God but you fail to worship and adore him as you are supposed to. Ahaziah is a fool, a fool in every way, shape, and form. And it's through his life that as if we want to follow that way, we're going to learn a couple things about what takes place. The first point in my outline this morning is that when we go the way of Ahaziah and we say that there is no God, we disregard the power and providence of God. In our text, we are welcomed with this new character, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab and Jezebel. What a life Ahaziah must have had. He was the king's son. He was the one, the prince, who lived in the palace. What a life he must have lived. 
I mean, he had the best education, he had the best food, he had the best clothing. He got to hang around with uh, the who's who of the nation of Israel. Everything that a prince would have wanted, he would have had. This is the life of Ahaziah as a son, as a child. But as the son of a king, especially King Ahab and the Queen Jezebel, he must have also been privy to many great things. I wonder... At minimum, had he heard, if not seen with his own eyes, all of the things that we have studied in our text. Had Ahaziah been there the day that Elijah entered into Ahab's throne room? Had he been there when the pronouncement of famine had come? Maybe a small younger, a small young boy? Maybe standing by the throne of his parents as this uh, leathery figure comes in, this man with a garment of hair and a belt around him, probably looking quite haggard as many prophets did, who would come and pronounce the judgment of God if there wasn't a young Ahaziah in the court. I wonder if Ahaziah had heard about, uh, of course, the three and a half years of destruction that God brings on the nation of Israel. If he had heard about the exploits of this one man taking on 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and the subsequent fire that fell from heaven. And that this one man, Elijah, this troubler of his mom and dad, who had prayed that rain would come. Over and over again, there's no doubt in my mind, that Ahaziah knew about Elijah and was well aware of what Ahaziah had done. He had seen the power and providence of God over and over again. The reason why Ahaziah uh, ascends to the throne of Israel is because his dad dies just as the word of the Lord came to Elijah. You would have thought if anybody would have bowed the knee to God, if anybody in their time of need would have turned to the God of Israel, it would have been Ahaziah. But this is not what fools do. Instead of following God and pursuing God, he disregards all of that. And he says, I'm not going to go that way. I'm not going to live that way. I'm going to do my own thing. The text tells us in 1 Kings chapter uh, 22, that he did evil, in verse 52, in the eyes of the Lord, because he walked in the ways of his father and mother. Just like father and just like mother, Ahaziah says, instead of following the God whom I know and whom I'm called to serve, I will serve and worship the gods of Baal. And in doing so, he disregards the providence and power of God. And now he's going to meet face-to-face with this man. But before he does, we see that this disregard involves a couple of things. First of all, it, it's in light of his affliction. Notice what the text says right away in verse uh, 2 of chapter uh, 1 of Second Kings. Now, Isaiah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria, and he had injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, Go and consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover <clears throat> from this injury. Now, we're told that on some random day, it doesn't tell us what day of the week it is. It doesn't tell us when during his two-year reign. He only reigns as king for two years that he's out and about in his palace and he falls. Now, the idea here is that he fell through a window of some sort. Lattice was usually the way to allow wind and air to go into an uh, a Old Testament home, but also allow for some privacy. 
And somehow he's doing something. We're not sure what he's doing. We're not sure if, per se, a particular sin had caused this. But we're told that he falls and he has an injury. We're not told the extent of the injury, but it's, it's severe enough to bring the question of whether or not he's going to live, whether or not he'll be healed. Now, right away, I want to give him uh, at least some props. The question he asks is a reasonable one. It's reasonable to ask when trouble befalls us, when we get a bad report from the medical doctor, when there's doubt in our mind because of the circumstances around us, to ask the question, is this the end? Could this be all that God has for me? It's totally reasonable to ask those questions. But notice, we'll learn later on, he does not go to God to ask those questions, but he pursues someone else. In fact, many times in our times of great weakness and doubt that Isaiah finds himself in, it is where many turn to God. It is in that time of weakness, pain, and trouble that many will bow the knee, but not Ahaziah, because he searches for his answer in another source. He sends men to the town of Ekron in the city of the region of the Philistines. It is there that he thought he would find his answer. But notice, he sends his messengers and we see Elijah's intervention. You would have thought that this affliction would have got him thinking, but no doubt he would have thought about it in verses 3 through 5 when this man shows up. The text tells us that the angel goes to Elijah and he says, I want you to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going off to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? He says, I want you to meet them, and I want you to tell them to go back to their king and say, the Lord says, you will not get out of this bed, but you will die. And so here, Elijah, once again, is called into service. He's called to intervene. Now, notice what happens. The king's men come back, and they say to the king, or the king says to them, why are you back? And he says, while we were going, there's this man that came. And Ahaziah wants to know, well, what did this man say? He says, you're going to die. Well, King Ahaziah, I've got to ask the question, who is this guy? Who is this mystery man? In verse 7, it tells us that they don't know his name, but all they can do is describe him. He is a man uh, that wears some hairy garment with a belt around him. I wonder if it was like one of those WWF belts, you know, as the champion prophet. You know, an Armani camel dress. Whatever it is, we know that Ahaziah knew of Elijah because from two descriptions that are given, he knows who the man is. He says, that's Elijah the Tishbite. Now notice how he does it. He knows him, and write this down, just it's helpful for us to remember. He knows that it's Elijah by his wardrobe, a hairy garment with a leather belt. That is the same description that is given of John the Baptist when John the Baptist in the New Testament comes onto the scene as a prophet of Jesus Christ. I think it's probably pretty standard fare because Hebrews chapter 11 says that many of the people of God went about with goatskin garments all day long. I think that this is probably a sign of a man of God. So they say his wardrobe had us kind of keyed off. But notice it's also not only his wardrobe, but his words. Words of conviction, of a man willing to stand against the king. 
I wonder how many people had ever, in the couple years of Ahaziah's reign, ever said to the king something that he didn't want to hear. And here his messengers come back, and what do they articulate? A guy we met on the road wearing this hairy garment and a leather belt says, you're going to die. You're going to die. I wonder if the king says, who speaks to me like this? And the only thought he has is, who spoke to my father like that? It's Elijah the Tishbite. You would think again that Elijah or that Ahaziah would say, all right, I get it. I'm going to stop in my tracks. I'm going to keep from doing what I'm doing because I remember, and I'm no moron, I'm no fool. My parents played games with this guy, and it didn't turn out too well for them. Now, I want you to understand, Ahab is dead. But uh, Queen Jezebel uh, is not dead. She doesn't die until 2 Kings chapter 9. Some years later, that death will take place. And I wonder if his mommy was talking to him in his ear. That's that Elijah. you got to deal with him. Your wimpy old dad never could deal with him. I had to come in and deal with him. Be the man that you need to be. Talking her son up to communicate the need to get rid of of Elijah. Now, just so you're aware, if you do go into Kings, 2 Kings 9, um, be aware that you will see the death of Ahaziah. And if you don't understand what I'm going to tell you, you're going to think that the Bible's all messed up and it's got all kinds of errors. Understand, there are two Ahaziahs who reigned as king. One over the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, and one over the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. And so Ahaziah will be killed right around the same time, the king of Judah, I'm sorry. Ahaziah, the king of Judah, will be killed around the same time as Jezebel is in 2 Kings 9. Don't mix that Ahaziah with the Ahaziah of our text. This guy's going to die in his bed just as God had prophesied. That's extra credit. You can thank me later. Okay, so we have this Ahaziah living like a fool. And instead of being like his dad, even being like his mom who sent empty threats to this prophet who caused such trouble, Ahaziah says, we're going to deal with this once and for all. He sends a a detachment of 50 men to go and arrest Elijah. No empty threats. I'm going to finish what my dad couldn't. We're going to deal with you today. But notice he has a disregard even in the destruction of the soldiers. This guy doesn't get it. He has an issue that befalls him where he should be turning to God and he turns to this God of Ekron, Baalzebub. The same guy, Elijah, who showed up in Ahab and Jezebel, his mom and dad's life, now is involved in his life. You would have thought he would have turned around. You would have thought he would have come to his his senses. But he sends three times a group of 50 men and their captain. And the first two times, they boldly and arrogantly find Elijah on the top of a hill, and they say, man of God, you come down with us. The king wants you. What they want to do is arrest him. What they want to do is bring him, humiliated as a prophet of God, and say, now we want to show you who's boss. And so these 50 men who have come to arrest the most wanted man of Israel find out who's really boss. In verses 9 through 13, the text tells us that what Elijah simply says is, If I am a man of God, I want you to understand that what is happening here is a battle between God and all false gods. 
What God is saying is, am I not here in Israel that you have to go to someone else? And then what Elijah does is a play on words. If I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and destroy you all. Uh Aha, fire from heaven. Why would God use fire from heaven? Because God is wanting to get the king's attention. What had been the major battle between Ahab and Elijah way back when he was a young man? It was the battle at Mount Carmel. This Elijah who brought fire down from heaven. So we have a problem. Ahab had the famine. Here, um, Ahaziah has a fall. We have the same prophet, Elijah, coming into the life of um, uh, Ahab. Too many names here. Ahab, now into the life of his son, Ahaziah. The way that God proved himself to be the God of Israel was bringing fire down from heaven. And not only does he give one fire from heaven, but twice saying, hey, the son is two times dumber than the father is. I'll give him two examples of it. I'm going to kill 102 of the, men's, of the men of this man's army. And still, after all of that, he doesn't change. Say with me, he's a fool. Say it. He's a fool. After all of this, he still doesn't give up. He doesn't quit. The text tells us that the fool says in their heart, there is no God. Let me tell you, there are people, multitudes of people that woke up today who saw the glory of another morning, who felt the heat of the sun, who felt the love of family and relationships, who have the ability, unknowing to themselves how they breathe in and breathe out, how their heart beats involuntary, how their mind works without them having to try to figure it out because they've been fearfully and wonderfully made, and yet in their heart they say, there is no God. Ahaziah is just an example of the sinful world that we live in. No different. Notice what happens to these people. As you are a fool and as you walk the way of a fool, you will go down the path of unbelief. Ahaziah had every reason to turn back to God. So does the sinful world around us. Understand this. Everything that he needed, he wanted an answer, he wanted healing, he wanted his nation to be powerful once again. He had all the questions that only God could provide. And the one person who could provide for it, he says, I don't want it. That is the total definition of a fool. The desire to pursue after a certain level of things, knowing the one who can give it, who has proven himself to give it, and saying, I'd rather go to someone else. Now notice what this path creates. It creates an opportunity, first of all, unbelief does, to give a place to the enemy. Ahaziah has seen this in his life of his kingdom. Notice what it says going back to verse 1 of Second Kings. We are told that because of Ahab's death, it had opened up an opportunity for Moab to revolt. Moab was one of the regions that Israel had conquered in the area of Samaria. And because of all of the infighting and all of the issues, many commentators believe that Moab had heard the news of the God of Israel moving away from its people because of its sinfulness. And this is seen in other passages of Scripture when the Babylonians and the Assyrians hear that God's 
favor is not on the Israelites because of their sin, and at the right time they would attack. Notice what it says, after Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. I don't want to take this too far. But just in the physical realm, Ahaziah had opened himself by not following God. He had opened himself up to the attack by the enemy, Moab. And I would say this in the spiritual realm. When you refuse to acknowledge God in your life, you become totally vulnerable to the works and schemes of the devil. You got no one who's on your side. There was no one there to help you in your hour of need. One of the greatest things that I know of as a Christian is that I have a God who will never leave me nor forsake me. I have a God who tells me that if I resist the devil, he will flee from me. I don't have that because of who I am. I don't have that because God has given me this uh, large uh, body size to take on any foe. No, I have that because God is with me And he will be victorious even when the greatest attacks of the devil come. But the unbeliever has nothing. They fight in their own strength and they find themselves losing. Notice that it gives a place to the enemy. It also leads us to pursue idolatry. I would be remiss not to bring forth the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 that says this, Romans 1, 21, for although they knew God, again, this is the idea of not an intellectual fool, but a behavioral one. They knew God. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. What does Ahaziah do? Because he has turned his heart from God, his heart has to be filled with something. Understand this, when you don't have God in your life, you'll fill your life with something else. You'll fill your heart with something else. And that's what Ahaziah does. There is no atheist in this world. Every person believes in something. It may not be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the person and work of Jesus Christ, but they believe in something. Notice, Ahaziah chooses to pursue the help of another other than God. The name of this god is Beelzebub. This was a false god who is known literally in the Hebrew as Lord of the Flies. I don't know why his title is Lord of the Flies and why anybody in their right mind would want to go to someone named Lord of the Flies. But he does. Many believe that Beelzebub was known to have some powers to see into the future as well as heal from disease. Aha, that's exactly what Ahaziah needs. In an ancient text that was found around the time of, uh, that would have been written around the time of uh, Ahaziah's life, it says this of Beelzebub, who among the gods will drive out malady, remove sickness? None among the gods ever answer. When no one has answered, Beelzebub replies, It is I that will make magic, and I will surely call health into being. I will drive out sickness, expelling all illness. It could have been this quote that Ahaziah had heard or read that would have given him hope for tomorrow. It is this God of Ekron who would be known later as Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Jesus would meet up with the Lord of the Flies 
and he would show himself to be victorious. Now some of you may think that what Ahaziah did did not deserve the punishment that was given. I want you to understand that when you seek to know the future and bypass God, God's word is clear that when you seek wisdom outside of my word in the form of mediums, horoscopes, palm readers, fortune tellers, and everything else that likens itself in that way. I want to be as clear as it is today that when it comes to this and any other forms of such activity, they find their way back to their home address, and it's called hell. Stay away from it. It is unfitting for the people of God. God tells us not to inquire of these things, and only the foolish do so. Let it not be the case in the church today. Ahaziah was wrong in doing it, and so are we. And notice one final thing in this, and that is that it kept him from personal humility. If there was ever a time that Ahaziah should have been humble, it should have been after a good fall. And yet he seeks after the advice of a false god. He thumbs his nose at Jehovah, And he sees over a hundred of his greatest men die at the hands of the prophet who had troubled his dad. And yet the only humility that we ever see is in the life of the third captain with his men. He bows down on his knees and he says, have respect for my life. Don't don't kill me. I know who you are. I respect who you are. I I honor who you are. I don't know if he was a God-fearing man or not, but he was a smart man. The third captain was no fool, and because he was not a fool, he saves the life of his 50 men under his care. Boy, he should have taken a a page out of that man. Ahaziah should have taken a page out of that third captain's life. What a picture of the fallen world Ahaziah gives us. I always wonder this. Doesn't the unbeliever in the world ever stop to think, what if I'm wrong? What if there is a God? I mean, I think I'm a pretty smart guy, but I know I don't know all things, and and my goodness, what if I'm wrong on this one? My eternity is sealed. There's no second chances. Ahaziah should have been asking that question. But pride, just like in the life of Ahaziah, gets in the life of every unbeliever. I don't need God. I'll figure it out on my own. If I have God in my life, he'll tell me what to do, and I don't want him to do that. I want to do things my way. And so this life of foolishness keeps us from the humility that we need. Now, on the way of humility, never forget, people, that just because we find ourselves being able to articulate that the unbeliever is a fool, never, n- let us never forget that we too were once foolish ourselves. And it's not because a light bulb came on in your head that you said, I choose God. But God in his grace opened your hearts and your minds to the gift of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to us and the final point this morning, and that is that if we're going to have any opportunity to reach modern-day Ahaziahs, then we must be devoted to playing our part. In a world such as ours, filled with Ahaziahs, 
Christians must be all the more devoted to a ministry that reaches these people and pursues these people because we remember how it was to be lost. We remember what it means to have been blinded. We remember what it was like to be held captive by the evil one. And yet God, out of his grace and love, opens our hearts and our minds to that gospel and now has given us a call to do the same. And so this activity, this ministry, and first of all, involves a calling. Elijah was called. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord has come to us. We are to go out into the world and make disciples. By making disciples means telling people about Jesus. We saw a skit about it. You've been encouraged over and over again to share the good news. But i got to tell you, it's not easy. You're sharing the inevitable, if they don't turn, the inevitable demise of one's life. This calling, just as it did in the life of Elijah, would throw us from the comfort zone into a place of great consternation. Notice that it takes courage. Elijah would stand before a king and have to confront him. That would not be easy. He would stand before, uh, at this point now, over 150 armed soldiers, and yet he would not give way. Elijah showed the courage that we need to exhibit in our own lives. Now, there are two aspects to this courage I want you to write down. Christians, first of all, must be courageous enough to stand firm in a sinful world. Write that down. They have to have the courage to stand firm in a sinful world. Elijah had proven himself faithful by being the prophet God had called them to be every day of his life, standing firm against the religion of Baal. But notice, he doesn't just stand against the tide of sinless or sin uh, and godless living, but he spoke faithfully. We just can't stand firm. Some of us say, well, I won't witness, but I'll stand firm. And you've got one part of the courageous life of Christ down. But at some point, you've got to open your mouth. And at some point, you have to faithfully articulate that this is the God whom I serve. When you say that there is no God in America, I'm here to tell you there is, and he's my Lord, and he's my Savior, and he can be your Savior as well. Stop living the way you're living and turn to Jesus Christ for the salvation of your sins. That's the faithful speaking that Elijah does. Hey, you can't live like you want to and get away with it, Ahaziah. God is a God who will come and who will judge both the living and the dead. Because of this message, it will usually involve confrontation. I can't imagine Ahaziah gets the message, and just by the way, Ahaziah, you're going to die. You're never going to leave the bed. Okay, Elijah, thank you. That was the answer I was looking for. You better believe he's angry. You better believe he's upset. You better believe he wants to throw everything he has at this man. Elijah, and let me tell you something, when you start proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, you will become a target to people you thought you were your friends, that are in your family. Jesus said, they hated me, and because of that, they'll hate you. Why? Because you're telling them you can't live like you want to anymore. Notice finally that even if we do all of this, if we live out our calling, if we're courageous, if we endure the confrontation that comes, understand that it doesn't guarantee change. Some of you have been praying, some of you have been witnessing and telling others of Christ, and maybe it's a child, maybe it's a a spouse, maybe it's a family member or a friend or a, a fellow employee, and you've been just over and over again, every opportunity, you're Elijah in that moment. 
But remember that Elijah spoke to Ahaziah. He spoke to Jezebel. He spoke to Ahab. In the end, after everything was all said and done, they really never turned to God. And that is the sad commentary of the great foolishness of men and women. The good news of Jesus Christ is there, free, given to us. All we have to do is accept. And we say, you know what? I'd rather do it my own way that leads to destruction. Just because you do all of that doesn't guarantee change. Before I close, I want to give you three more points that I think are important but didn't fit in the outline. The first one is, as we move to some points that I want you to ponder, is this text speaks to parents. You say, Tim, how does it speak to parents? And maybe you've already figured it out. Well, uh, if you're a parent, you know that your job is to work with fools. At least in the Bedal house it is. And to train fools in the way of the Lord. But I want you to notice something in the text again. And I've read it already. But again, in 1 Kings 22, verse 52, at the very end of that book, it says, He did, Ahaziah did evil in the eyes of the Lord because he walked in the ways of his father and mother. Let me ask you a question, parents, very, very clearly to you this morning. No matter what age your children are, If your children are walking in your ways, are they walking closer to God or farther from God because of your example? I gotta be honest with you, Ahaziah didn't have a chance. And it's sad because he had a group of idiots as parents. Not just fools, morons who were given opportunity after opportunity instead of pursuing God They pursued a false god. And you know what the fool does? He follows his parents. You know, it's amazing that kids do that, isn't it? They follow us. I remember an anti-smoking ad that took place uh, some years ago when I was a young child. And I remember a dad is out smoking while he's working on the car. and, And he's just smoking as if nobody is watching And then they pan off to the corner and there's this little girl who's playing with dolls and she's imitating her dad. Unbeknownst to him, imitation is taking place. Your kids, my kids are watching us. And I want to ask you the question, as they watch you and if they go in your ways, will it lead them to God? Are you living a life that says there is a God in this family? His name is Jesus Christ and we live and worship and serve him? Or are they seeing a person who in all ways, shapes, and forms believes that there's a God, but practically speaking and behaviorally speaking, there's no evidence of that pursuit of God. And so what your kids walk away with is, make sure you go to church, make sure you have your children in church, make sure that you look all pretty on Sunday, but Monday to Friday you can live like hell all the time you want. I'll tell you, this scares me as a parent. My wife and I just had a, probably a two-hour conversation on the way home from a family wedding that we were a part of. And for two hours, we talked about strategically figuring out, knowing that these years are formative in our boys' lives. I've come to the conclusion that ages 8 to 12, right where Noah is at right now, is huge. Because when he hits 12, all the gods will come in. 
I don't care how much you protect your kids, what kind of schooling you do. At around 12 or 13, your kid's becoming aware of the world around them. And so I have dedicated myself, and Amanda too, that we're going to do all that we can to raise our children in that way. You say, well, how do you do that? You follow God with all your heart and mind, and you show God to be trustworthy in the good and in the bad. I stand here today because parents who lived in the good and the bad followed God. And I came to the conclusion when I was in high school, I could follow a lot of other things, but i got to be honest with you, God has seemingly been faithful to my parents. And teenagers, listen to that. It makes sense. And I will tell you, as one who's not as old as your parents may be, that God's ways have proven themselves to be faithful. Follow that. Pursue that. I'm going to be sharing, I shared this with uh, some of the elders. I have found, and it, and it works for me as boys, I think we can make it work for daughters as well, uh, a thing that was put together by Albert Moeller, who's the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville. And there are 12 focuses, he wrote it for his sons, 12 focuses that are comprehensive to all facets of life. I'll get that into your hands. But it deals with raising a son to be physically mature and God-honoring, spiritually mature and God-honoring, emotionally mature and God-honoring, financially mature and God-honoring, intellectually mature, verbally mature, every facet of life. And I got that and I said, Lord, it is as if you gave me the roadmap that I'm looking for. How do I make sure that my sons don't walk in the ways of evil? That means I've got to walk in the ways of God, and so do you. What a word for parents this morning. Second, it gives us a perspective. It gives us a perspective. In light of this passage, let us never forget. Hear me out. Let us never forget that. There is one God, and he alone is who we turn to in our hour of good and in the hour of bad. He's it. That's the ball game. You start going around and playing games with someone else, and I can tell you the issues that will come, the calamity that will befall you, will make Ahaziah's thing look like a club med vacation. God doesn't play games. You worship him and worship him alone. Finally, a priority. Because there is a God in our lives, because there is a God in Israel, and because he has saved me, My priority, your priority, is to worship and serve and please him every day. Let it never be said of us that we lived any moment in our lives as if there was no God in Israel. But that every word we speak, every step that we take, whether we eat or drink, my brothers and sisters, that we would do all things to the God of Israel and to his glory and to his glory alone. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and Lord, we have seen the example of foolish living. Oh God, let us not play the part of a fool, but let us live in wisdom and certainty that there is a God, and it is the God whom we serve, the God of these holy scriptures, the God who gave his son Jesus to die for us. Lord, let us realize and recognize that the world does not know you. And that the way that they will know, how can they know, the scripture says, unless someone goes and preaches to them, Father, that we would leave this place today with a renewed heart to reach the lost, with a new heart to pursue the foolish, 
with a renewed heart not to judge, but to speak the truth in love even when that truth hurts. So that just like us, who were foolish and disobedient, because of the grace of Almighty God, they may be accepted into your family. And even better than being a prince and a king of a temporal kingdom, that they will be a prince and an heir to the kingdom of God. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace and your love in receiving fools like us into your kingdom. To you be glory, honor, and praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.